Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live Saturday mornings from 9 till 10. Find us online at federalnewsradio.com or hear us on the radio in the Washington, D.C. area on the following frequencies, 1500 AM and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Coming up on today's show, the man who invented the like button on Facebook says sayonara to Facebook. The Baltimore City 911 system was hacked. We'll tell you how this could have been easily avoided. And in Profiles in IT, it's Dustin Moskovitz, the co-founder and first chief technology officer of Facebook. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Wow. Two weeks uh, in a row he got it right. Oh, very good. We got an email from Doug in Baton Rouge. Dear Dr. Shirts and hey, Jim. <laughs> hey, hey, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> I searched and found on my computer, I got a Windows 10, um, Microsoft Windows 10 computer, an Internet folder called cookies. And when I looked for named files, I could see all sorts of mumbo-jumbos and letters with uh, all sorts of, you know, all ending with an extension, cookie, all kinds of codes on here. And I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, what all these codes mean and, you know, how to decipher them. They, uh, I don't seem to have any, you know, I don't, I don't have any real, any real concerns here. I just want to get rid of cookies that I don't need. And uh, but I do want to keep the cookies that are on my registered and secure sites, like for my banking and other things. It helps me log in. Thanks for a great and informative show, Doug in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Well, Doug, cookies are a uh, a way for websites to communicate with you to store information. Like when you go back to the website, you might want to have your username automatically put into the logon screen, or you may have selected some default options for that particular website, maybe certain colors or maybe certain uh, items. You might have purchased something there previously, and you've got some some uh, history with them, and they would like to store all of that in your machine so that when you go back and log into that particular website, it can pull that data out and restore the look and feel of of the web page to the way you left it. So it was really designed to be convenient for the user. And that information is stored as clear text, and they're called cookies, and they're stored by the browser. And a website actually has different commands for creating cookies and storing them on the browser. Now, a cookie has several things. It's got pairs of data. So, like, suppose... You've got user ID is one of the data that you want to store with the with the browser. It will have the it, the name of the of the field is user ID, and that will be followed by a you know a string of numbers, which is the user ID that they've assigned to you. And those and you got that pair of data, you know, the name of the field plus the the data in the field is stored. And you might have multiple pairs of these stored in the cookie, depending on what the what the uh, site is going to be tracking. You also have the domain name of the site that that actually put the cookie in, and so that domain name then has the right to grab the cookie 
You also have an expiration date if you if you if, if they say the cookie's only going to be good for like two weeks, we've got an expiration date. It could also have an expiration duration, like uh, it might be good for one month, and so it would have a one month duration. But what they do when they give a duration, they don't put the duration in days; they put it in seconds. So it's a very big number that duration. So it could be a duration, it could be a date, could be any number of items like that. They also have another option in the cookie where they can, in fact, they can in fact send the cookie information over um, over an encrypted data stream (HTTPS) that tends to protect the cookie um, to, to a certain degree. Now, your sites that you uh, that you go to, you're like your you know your banking sites. They're going to store your user ID. I would not recommend that they would store the password. That you know you don't really want the password there. Now you can actually you can look at the cookies. You can go into the browser, and every browser has a place where you can go in and you can look at the cookies that that browser has stored. You don't have to go into the raw subdirectory, and you can look at them. Now, if you'd like to read to see what the what the cookie actually means there's an extension there's that's called the decoder you know a cookie decoder extension they've got a lot of them now i would just have to be in chrome i'm using chrome now chrome and I, there's an extension called encoder decoder by the emergency.com and it's pretty nice you just can paste in whatever cookie you want and it will tell you what it means it will re- give it back to you so if you want to know what your cookies are going to be doing if you want to read all that all those codes just paste it into that cookie decoder and it'll tell you everything that you want to know normally the cookies are going to track session management like logins shopping carts game scores anything else the server should remember any kind of personalization you have it will be user preferences it'll also track uh, user behavior. Uh, this is used, user behavior, to track what you look at so they can deliver ads to you. And so cookies are useful, but they can also can be abused mm-hmm. by certain sites. We got an email from Ken Myers. Love your show. I keep missing it. I know I've, I know you got the podcast, but uh, could you put the time and day and the station call letters on your website so that I can find where it is? Uh, really, I love the show. Thanks again, Ken Myers. Well, Ken, you can go to the Tech Talk page, techtalk.stratford.edu, and that will tell you now that uh, it's on uh, Federal News Radio 1500 AM at 9 AM on Saturdays. And, of course, you can uh, you can uh, reuse it. You don't have to listen to it uh, in Washington. You can use the TuneIn radio app, and you can simply search for either Federal News Radio or 1500 AM, and it will come up with the show. So you can listen to it live over the internet anywhere. Yep. Uh, using Federal using using TuneIn radio, and of course the podcasts are always available. Thanks for being a loyal listener there. Um, and again, now we've got an email from Arnie in Crownsville, Maryland. This is an old email, actually. Arnie's now out in uh, Colorado. This, but he, when he wrote this, he was in Crownsville, Maryland. Hi, Doctor Shirts. I saw this story on BBC News. The dark net has a service called Tor, where you can visit hidden websites that may have their identities revealed. Uh, Tor uh, is uh, has shown a lot of you know a lot of interesting things lately, and uh, Tor is something that I would kind of like to understand. It seems like the government has a lot of interest in this. Is there any particular 
used by just the regular user, Arnie in Crownsville, Maryland. Well, Arnie, Tor is designed for people who want to surf the web anonymously. This is what it was originally designed. It was actually a um, uh, it was actually a, a, a routing project that originated in the U.S. Naval Research Lab. And what they wanted to do, they they wanted to find a way for uh, you so for for say government personnel or individuals that were in, behind enemy lines or people that were in repressive countries where they could surf the web and people couldn't tell where they were actually located. So Tor is it's called it stands for the onion router the onion router and it and it routes your requests over the internet through multiple layers and multiple relays and each relay is another layer of the onion you see mm-hmm. and so by the time you get to the final site where you want to go you might have you might have been you might have gone through 10 or 12 or 15 relays and each relay then Disguise is where that request came from, and so it's very hard to trace all the way back to you through all of those relays. So this has been a very effective method for masking your location on the web. Well, it turns out it's also used by criminals, as you would expect. Yeah, sure. So a criminal wants to go on to some of these uh, these uh, sites that are on the, the dark web where they could buy you know, illegal services. They could buy drugs. They could buy all. There's human trafficking on there. You can even go to these dark websites. You, you know, they got murder for hire sites. They got all sorts of really bad stuff on the dark web. So criminals that want to use the dark web to procure services illegally, of course, don't want to be traced down by the federal government, and so they use Tor. That's a very good way to do that. And Tor has a very strong encryption. In fact, it was so good that Edward Snowden only used Tor exclusively when he surfed the web. He, of course, the guy that revealed all the U.S. secrets. Now he's off, put him on WikiLeaks. Now he's off hiding somewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, but he only used Tor because that was a very good way to do it. Now it turns out that uh, the government actually is able to kind of crack into the Tor network. So it's not as secure as you might think. It's good if you're, say, behind the, the enemy line. If you're in China and you want to surf the web, you don't want the Chinese government to track you down. Tor is a pretty good item. But I think the NSA has a back door into the Tor network, so they can they can trace down where you've been. So it's not totally anonymous, but it's pretty good, and it's probably your best option out there if you want to surf the web anonymously, Arnie. We got an email from Tracy in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I've got an iPhone, and it's and I'm using iMessage for all my communication. Now, my boss communicates with me by iMessage on the weekend, and I don't want him to know that I've read the iMessage. Right. Because once I've read it, then he expects me to do something with it. It opens the floodgates. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'd like to just turn off the read message notification from him, but leave it on for everybody else. That's Mm -hmm. what I want to do. I just want to only only want to target my boss, and I want him to know it. And so that he sends me, even though I read it, he thinks I isn't read it. He thinks I'm not reading it. Well, this is actually, as you know, by default, your iPhone is set up to automatically notify someone when you've read an iMessage by default. But you can turn it off by user. So this is what you what you want. It's really extremely easy to do. You you go within the message app, open up the conversation with the contact in question. So you you go to the go to the message app, find the find his name, click on it, and then uh, then when you're in the in the um, 
in the uh, with when you brought up his name and the messages that he is associated with. You look in the upper right hand corner. There's a little I. Click on that. It's a it's a round button I. Click on that, and there's going to be something called send receipts. Send read receipts. Just turn it off. And so that will turn off the send read receipts for that user account only. And you can read his messages, and he will and never them. know that you've looked at them. Very and you nice. have plausible deniability. Exactly. You can say, you know, I was out on the slopes all weekend. I just didn't see that emergency message you had to do this research project. But as soon as I got to work on Monday... There it was. There it was. I'm I saw it. it. I'm all over it now. So so good luck with that, Tracy. I'm sure that will work for you. I hope he's not listening. Yeah. Just don't tell him that you did that. And I hope you used a fake name. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't want no. him, We don't want him to be listening to this no. show. We got an email from Alex in Reston. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently got notification from LifeLock that they had found information regarding my accounts on the dark web. You know, this is... Yeah. Another thing they do on the dark web is they sell credit card numbers. They sell all sorts of personal information so people can engage in identity theft. So they said on the dark web they had my account password was uh, was uh, revealed for LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And that could be a potential breach and impact the LinkedIn site. They said my password was readable. And it's on the dark web. What should I do? Is it really a serious threat? Love the show, Alex and Reston. Well, uh, Alex, um, if they've said that your uh, LinkedIn password's on the dark web, and there were some, there were some uh, security breaches at LinkedIn, you can simply change your password with LinkedIn. And hopefully, you didn't use the same password on multiple sites all over the place. Because if you did, you may want to. Change all of those passwords and maybe even do something totally unique, make them different, not all the same password. That would be the first thing I would do. I would also double-check the account settings because there are email addresses and phone numbers that are used for resetting the password where you can you can, you can can reset the password. It will send a text message to a phone number or, or it will send a, an email address. So frequently uh, when people hack an account, those backup reset parameters are changed so it's going to somebody else's phone number and somebody else's email address so they can go in and request a password change even though they can't log into your account and they'll get an email to this bogus email account and they can then reset the password even after you've gotten the account back so just double check that now the other thing that i would do and this is uh, you know, I've, I've done this on all my accounts that I really care about. I've set up two-factor authentication. Two-factor authentication is really good because even if somebody has your password, they can't get into your account because they log in with your password to the account. And if two-factor authentication is set up and you have given them a phone number or an email address, then they send a message either to either a text message to your phone or an email to the email account. And that text message or the email has a code in it. It could either be a, it's usually a six-digit code. Then you have to go back to your account and enter the six-digit code. That's the second factor, and then you can get into the account. So you can only log in if you have the correct password and if you have access to either the email account or the or the phone. I prefer using the phone because even the, the phone, you know, you've got to physically hold the phone in order mm-hmm. for it to work, and I think that's extremely secure. So... 
best of luck with your with your with Indeed. your ac- activities there. I um because identity theft is a big problem and what happens now particularly around tax time people engage in identity theft because you know tax refunds are given over you know yeah. o- online tax refunds there are cases where people have had their identity stolen they've logged on and they've gotten the tax refund so by the time the person goes to pick up their tax refund it's already gone, gone. so identity theft is a serious problem we got an email from Amara in Fairfax dear doc and jim i've got window i've got a windows 10 laptop and every time i reboot my computer microsoft onedrive forces me to log in or create an account it is annoying. How can, how can I get rid of this pop-up that's coming up all the time? Enjoy the podcast, Amara in Fairfax. Well, Amara, it is annoying. That I see that same pop-up on my Windows 10 uh, computer every time I, um, I, you know, I, I reboot and log in. It asks me to, you know, log into um, to OneDrive, and um, you know, it is kind of a pain in the neck. Basically, if you don't have a OneDrive account, Microsoft is just going to annoy you until you get one, and <laughs> then and then they're going to make. And then once you get one and and you automatically back up stuff to OneDrive, they're going to have you keep logging into it over and over and over again. Okay, here's what you can do to fix the problem. The reason that it pops up it, when you first reboot, it's that it's in the it's in the startup. OneDrive is in the startup. Uh, Routine, so the OneDrive uh, OneDrive program is loaded every time you start up because it's in the startup routine. So what you want to do is you want to you want to go and you want to disable that startup function. So so you can you can do this. You want to go to the Task Manager, bring up the Task Manager, and I mean, you could, there's a shortcut. You can go Control Shift Escape, and it'll bring up Task Manager, or you can just go to the uh, Go to settings and, and bring up task manager. And once the task manager is up, down in the lower right hand or lower left hand corner, there's a little symbol that's for more details. Click on that, and, uh, and another screen comes up, and there will be a tab that um, that one of the tabs is the startup tab. So click the startup tab, and it will list every single program that automatically starts up every time you reboot your computer, and just scroll down till you see Microsoft OneDrive, and then highlight it, and then click Disable. And you disable that program, and then it will not load Microsoft OneDrive uh, connection every time you boot up, and their pop-up will go away. Ah. And, of course, you always, I guess you could always say something to OneDrive, but then you, but then you could manually turn on OneDrive to do the saving. Now... If you never implant, if you never actually plan to use OneDrive, you could just uninstall it. So that's that's easy. You can just go to you can just go to the programs and click apps. Go down to Microsoft OneDrive. You go down to apps and features. Go down and then you highlight the Microsoft OneDrive and just click on un- uninstall and it is gone. Hmm. Now, actually, OneDrive is not too bad of a deal if you've got a, a Windows 365. Uh, account because you want to have the online Windows off Microsoft Office program, not Windows 365, Microsoft Office 365. So you, you, you've got the online Word and Excel and PowerPoint. If you've got that and, and you're paying like the, the regular annual subscription for your Office 365, you have one terabyte of OneDrive space provided for that. So you've got one terabyte of storage if you've got 
if you've got that account. So if you've got one terabyte of storage, you might as well use it. So you may decide that you want to use OneDrive to back up all your pictures and do it, do all of that. What I mean, actually, what I'm doing because I just believe in redundancy. I'm backing up all of my stuff to Carbonite. I'm backing up all my stuff to OneDrive, and I'm backing up other key files to Dropbox. So, plus I've got my my laptop. So when my um, when my laptop was run over that time that my wife that time that, that my oh, wife you were not going to divulge the name of the oh, offending party that, that that time that somebody in the household there drove off with the with, with my with my laptop on the roof and then it was left in the middle of the street and uh-huh. people ran over it. Well, that time when I totally lost my laptop, turned out I didn't lose any files because I had so many backups, and it was really quite uh, quite convenient. So that's a good question, and it, and I I have to admit that OneDrive popping up to log in is annoying. It even on my computer it even says, "Would you like to remember this this computer?" And I say yes. But then it doesn't remember it, and it pops up, and i got to log in again. So I'm going to try to figure out how to make it so I only have to log in once, not every time I open up the computer. We got an email from Helen in Rockville. Dear Tech Talk, I would like to automate some of the tasks in Word. I belong to this nonprofit, and I've got to do a lot of formatting and I'm sitting here just doing the same thing over and over, formatting the particular thing, pasting, and stuff. It just is a lot of redundant work, and I'd like to automate this process. How can I how can I do that in Microsoft Word? I've heard that there's a way to automate it, but the problem is I'm not a programmer, so I don't I don't know how to write a program to automate it. You know, so that's my problem. Well, Helen, the good news is you don't have to be a programmer to automate Microsoft Word. They have something called macros. And a macro is actually a program that you can activate either by pressing a button, a macro button, or by using a keyboard shortcut, depending on which you prefer. And once you activate it, the little program runs and does whatever you want. And you don't have to program it. You just demonstrate it. What you do is you just, you just you know, when you create the macro, you just go through the steps that you want to automate and Word will watch you go through the steps, and it will write the program that will do it for you, and it will save the macro. So this is what you want to do. This is how you do it. Just open up a, um, a blank Word document first, and at the top you'll see in the, in the menu there's something called View. Click on View, the View tab. And then on the very right-hand side there's something called Macros. So click on the Macro drop-down menu, and then click Record Macro. That's the key. Now you're you're going to be able to record the macro. Now you've got to name the macro. So it's a, it's very important to give a name to the macro and make give it a name that makes sense. So, you know, 2 years from now you know which macro it is and write a brief description of what you plan to do. Then you have to decide how I'm going to activate the macro. And you choose either a button, which is going to be in the in the menu at the top. It'll be a macro button that you can click. Or do you want it a keyboard shortcut? You pick which one you want, how you want to activate it. And you also have to store, tell them how you want to store your macro. For instance, if you want it to be a macro that's available to all Word programs across the board, then it's stored in the normal style sheet, the normal dot, normal dot, dot M, as they call it, and that's the normal style sheet. And then it's available to all programs that use the standard normal style sheet. Now, you could also save it to just this document if you want, 
and then you would, and it would only be in the style sheet for this document. You have to decide where it's going to be stored. And now after you've done that, click OK. So now you've named it. You said how I'm going to activate it and where I'm going to store it. Then what you want to do, if you you, you have to then if you cho- if you chose for instance that you wanted to activate it with button, you have to tell it where you want the button to be located, and that will give you a screen, and then you can add a button to the um, to the taskbar at the top. Now, if you said that you want to do a keyboard shortcut, it will, you'll have to tell it little, another window pops up and you tell it, you, you, you highlight the name of the macro you're doing and then you can put in the keyboard commands that you want, like control QC or whatever, you know, whatever you want to do. And it will remember those and then you can click the assign button and then that, that keyboard shortcut is assigned. So now once you've done that, if you've got the button or the shortcut assignment, you know where it's saved. You've got it named. Now you're ready to create it. So you click the Create button. And at this time, you just start going through the steps that you're trying to automate, whatever it is. You could just you just walk right through the steps whenever you're going to automate it. Now, if you're halfway through the steps and you say, wait a minute here, i got to do a little check something out. I'm not sure what my next step is. You can You can pause the recording, go off and do something. Then you can come back to this window and you can click Resume, and it will start recording all your steps. And then when you're finished, you just click Stop Recording. And at that moment, the macro will be written and saved, and it's available for you. Then to run the macro, you either push the button or you can uh, or you can use the keyboard shortcut. By the way, these macros are available not only for Microsoft Word, but they're in Excel, PowerPoint, and Access. So Microsoft has made it very easy for non-programmers to automate Microsoft Office. Pretty cool. Yeah, we got an email from Brian in Kansas. Dear Tech Talk, I have a dilemma. Employers will not hire me for an IT job without experience. And I cannot get experience without a job. Now, it seems like an impossible situation. It's like the chicken and egg. What comes first, the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the job or the experience? What would you recommend for someone just starting out like me, Brian in Kansas? Well, this is a frustrating dilemma, Brian, because, but you're not the only one dealing with it. Career fields such as IT rely on precise technical skills, and often employers want proof that the candidate can deliver on those skills before they hire them. When, and so you're a beginner, so how can you prove that you've got the skills? Well, here are a few things that you could do that actually work for our students, because we, we, we're confronted the same thing with all of our IT students, both the undergraduate level at the graduate level. First of all, do some projects at home. Build something at home. Build a server. You could build a, um, a web, uh, you know, a web system. You could build, uh, you could set up a Wi-Fi network with all kinds of routing. You could, you, you could actually have your web page connected to the internet by, you know, by porting, by setting up the ports correctly. You could uh, you could do programming at home. You could set up a database. Pick something that's interesting to you and just set up a lab and just do it at home. Because I can tell you, when you go and you apply for a job, if you say you got a you got an IT lab at home and this is what you're working on, it shows enthusiasm and dedication, and employers like that. And then you can talk about what you've actually uh, done, and. Um, and, and once you feel comfortable with, you know, the skills you've, you've done at your, for your, yourself, you can then volunteer to help your neighbors and your family and your friends, and you can become the IT go-to guy for your whole extended family, and that will give you real experience that you can talk about. 
<clears throat> now, the second thing you could do would be earn some certifications. There are certifications out there. You can, you know, you can study for a few days, pass a test. It's very narrow, very, very narrow knowledge, but employers like it because then it can prove that you, in this one narrow area, you've nailed it. And so certifications might cost you $100 or something to get, but it's not a bad way for somebody starting out to get some very specific certifications. Then you could get a certification in, like, say, Linux operating system or a database certification or a hardware certification. That's always something very, a very good idea. You can also volunteer your services for businesses. There are a lot of charities out there that just don't have anybody to set up their web page or to run their network or to come in and do virus scans on their computers or to install new computers or to set up a network. There are a lot of charities and a lot of churches that just really need help. Volunteer. Volunteer to help these charities or these churches or the, any nonprofit. And instead of charging compensation, just say, look, all I want is a nice recommendation from you saying that what I did for you and how pleased you were with it. That's also a very good angle, and that's as good as experience, really. You could also, you know, you could become an intern. You could become an unpaid intern. Many schools have have internship programs, either for credit or not for credit. doesn't matter. Some are paid. Some are not paid. These internship jobs are pretty good. You can check your local job boards. You can also, if there's a company that you're interested in, just call up their HR department and say, look, you're interested in being an intern there. And, you know, you could be an unpaid intern for them for a while. Right. And they may, they, they may just, they just may just uh, create that position for you. And, and many, uh, companies like to do that because it, it feels like they they feel like they're giving back to the community. When you have an internship position and you're providing your services for free, the employer, has an obligation to teach you so you get value from the experience and so it's uh, it and and they get free labor but you get value in terms of what you learn so it's it's a very good trade off and if they like what you do and there's a position open sometimes these internships right place at the right time that's, you want it with a job that's right and then of course you want to network you want to go out you want to act like a professional so that means you want to join the professional organizations if there are any meetings any any user groups in the area database user groups linux user groups microsoft user groups oracle user groups they're all over the place join these user groups and just show up at the meetings and help out and start talking to the people there and find out what they're interested in you might find a mentor and if you are connected to the industry through these groups you already look like you're part of them and you behave like them and you can also it they also tell you what's worth learning what's you know how you could craft your career and it's a very good way to get into an into a new field through a referral rather than just trying to hit the one ads and right and of course you always have the option which of course of getting educated that's what students do at stratford they'll come to stratford they'll get a very specific degree with a lot of hands-on and then they'll use the Stratford University Career Services to place them. So that's all. These are all various options that cost various degrees of dollars and uh, take different amounts of time. But they're all ways for somebody entering the IT field to get a job without any experience. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. 
or certainly on the next show. It's Saturday morning, and this is Tech Talk Radio. We're heard in Washington, D.C. on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2. On the web at stratford.edu, scroll down to the bottom right of the page and click on Tech Talk Radio to learn more about and listen to past shows of Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics and networking telecommunications careers now is the time to act stratford makes it easy turning your qualified experience into credits earned and if you're a vet they'll help you maximize your military benefits get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18 it that's stratford.edu slash 18 it if it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Dustin Aaron Moskovitz. He's best known as co-founder and the first... Chief Technology Officer of Facebook. He's also probably one of the most luckiest guy, one of the luckiest guys in technology for this decade. Muscovitz was born May 22nd, 1984 in Gainesville, Florida, and he grew up in Ocala, Florida. He attended Vanguard High School and he graduated with an international business diploma from the high school that was preparing him for, you know, for going to school internationally. Muscovitz enrolled in Harvard's economics program, and this is why he was so lucky. His roommate was Mark Zuckerberg. That's pretty lucky. Yeah, so he and Mark were best of buds. Now, Zuckerberg had built Facebook in his dorm room using a programming language called PHP. It's fairly easy to learn. I mean, actually, I wrote the first Stratford University website in PHP. I just got a book and learned PHP. I mean, it is true. You can... If you know how to program, uh, you know if you learn if you know a programming language already, you can pick up PHP in a, you know in a week or so or a few days. So within a couple of weeks of launching uh, of launching the the site, he, uh, Zuckerberg had several thousand people signed up, and then other colleges asked to launch it at their schools. Now it turned out that Zuckerberg was taking a computer science class. He was in a programming class, and it was pretty intense, and he just didn't have time. To really work on the you know the Facebook page and you know you know and expand it to other schools, he just you know he just he couldn't get to it because he was actually well doing his homework. So his friend uh, Dustin said, "Well, um, uh, Zook, 
I'll help you. I'll help you expand Facebook to other schools. And, and Zuckerberg said, "Yeah, but you, but you don't know how to program." He says, well, "That's not a problem. That's not a problem." Now, now Dustin had actually studied C programming language a little a little bit before, so he went home and he bought a book, Perl for Dummies. Perl is a is another programming language used for uh, used for the. Um, uh, used for Unix systems if you want to, you know, run programs in, in, in the Unix shell. So he went and learned Perl for dummies. He came back and he said, Zook, I'm ready to go. I, I read this all weekend. I read this book, Perl for Dummies. And Zook looked at him and he said, Dustin, the site's written in PHP, not Perl, dude. <laughs> dude. <laughs> dude. I, I was watching a YouTube video where Zuckerberg was 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 talking about this story, and he said, well, "I wrote the, P, the PHP and not Pearl, dude." I <laughs> hope Zuckerberg wears a clean T-shirt when he goes to Congress. <laughs> That's right. So uh, and so he said, "Okay." And so then he got a book on PHP for dummies, and he studied it for a few days. Then he went to work helping Zuckerberg expand this expand the site from one school to many schools. Now, there were four people uh, that started Facebook. Three of them were roommates, Zuckerberg, Eduardo Saverin, and Chris Hughes, and Dustin Muscovitz were all the four founders of Facebook. And, um, and uh, three of them were roommates. That would be Zuckerberg, Muscovitz, and Hughes. They were all roommates. And um, they decided to found Facebook, uh, the, 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 start the company in their dorm room in February of 2004. Now, originally it was called the Facebook. Ah. The Facebook. And the, the domain name was thefacebook.com. And it was an online directory of all of Harvard students because basic, and it was designed to help residential students identify members in other residences. You'd know who lived in your dorm, but what about the dorm next door? You right. didn't know. And so then you could, and so that it was just a collection of faces. So it was a book of faces, and you could see who was where. That's what was the Facebook. And, um, but then they started, you know, it became really popular because it was a, it was a it was a way for, you know, students to you know to connect with each other uh, online. Now, one of the most complicated calculations that the site did was what they call the social connection graph. It's like who's connected to who, who's friends of who, and all of that. And that is actually continues to be the power of Facebook, the social connection graph, and that's how they're able to know so much about you because they have a very detailed social connection mm -hmm. graph. Now, in 2004, Zuckerberg, Hughes, and Muscovitz took a year off from Harvard, and um, and they, they moved the Facebook operations to Palo Alto, California. They hired eight employees and started, you know, expanding Facebook. Now, Hughes... You know, they, you know, they, they all told their parents, hey, we're, we're going to drop out of Harvard. We're going to go do Facebook for a year. And uh, Zuckerberg's parents accepted it. Muscovitz's parents accepted it. Hughes's parents said, you're not going to drop out of Harvard and do some wacko thing like Facebook. So <laughs> Hughes went back to Harvard and, and, and finished getting his bachelor's degree. But Zuckerberg and Muscovitz, they just they dropped out of Harvard. They were only there for two years. And they just continued working on um, on Facebook. Now, Muscovitz was the company's first chief technology officer and his first VP of engineering. And that's, because, that's of course, because of his extensive programming experience in PHP. Ah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He's the luckiest man and of the because decade. Because he had no experience. That's right. He's the luckiest man of the decade. He led the technical staff and oversaw the major architecture of the site. 
So, you know, he he was the one that sort of laid out the arc when they expanded to the schools. How do you do the linkage? How do you store the data in a distributed way? How do you create the social connection graph? The, the, the basic architecture of Facebook, uh, Muscovitz, was sort of the, the guy behind it all. Now, he was responsible for the company's mobile strategy and development. Now, he only stayed with Facebook until 2008. Mm-hmm. Then in 2008, Muscovitz left Facebook to form a new company, Asana, and he uh, he took with him Justin Rosenstein, who was the engineering manager of Facebook. Justin is the guy that invented the like button, and I'm going to talk about Justin later in the show, okay? Because that's the thing that's so insidious: people waiting around for likes and loves right. and that sort of thing. So they went to uh, create Asana, and Asana was basically a way to do workforce flow using the same technology that's in um, that's in uh, Facebook. Now, in 2011, um, Muscovitz co-founded a philanthropic organization called Good Ventures with his girlfriend and now his wife, Carrie Tuna. And that uh, was in 2011. Good Ventures has donated approximately $100 million so far to the GiveWell Top Charities. In fact, they they worked with GiveWell Top Charity so much that in, they formed a collaboration with GiveWell, and they created a spinoff a company called Open Philanthropy Project, whose goal is to figure out the best way to use large sums of money for charity. Muscovitz and Tuna are the youngest couple to sign the Giving Pledge, which commits billionaires to giving away most of their wealth. Now, this is why I said Muscovitz is one of the luckiest guys. On March 2011, Forbes reported that Moscovich, to be the youngest self-made billionaire, based on his 2.3% share of Facebook, his net worth is $14.3 billion. Wow. That's that lucky. Was in, that was in 2017. Do you think that was a lucky break? That's a lucky break, all right. His net worth is now $14.3 billion. Uh, Muscovitz and Tuna, his wife, uh, they attend Burning Man regularly. They've, he's been out there at about six Burning Mans. He loves Burning Man. And I was reading, uh, I was reading blogs about his first trip to Burning Man, second trip to Burning Man. He loves it because it it forces self reliance when you're out there, and you have to learn how to depend on others when things don't go right. And he's he thought, he thought there are a lot of life lessons that you get out of this. He was a big supporter of Hillary Clinton. He donated actually twenty million dollar to dollars yeah. to Hillary Clinton's campaign. He was one of the uh, biggest uh, Democratic donors during that uh, during that election cycle. So there you go. All you want to know about Dustin Aaron Muscovitz, the luckiest man in technology in this decade. You can get lucky in a couple of minutes and win free lunch by playing the pop quiz. Stay tuned. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and 103.5 FM HD2 and 103.9 FM HD2. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
Ready to make a real difference in 2018? A degree in cybersecurity, digital forensics, or networking and telecommunications could help you secure your future as you help secure the world. Stratford University is now enrolling for career-focused IT degree programs on campus and online. Let Stratford's experienced IT faculty share their industry knowledge and practical solutions to help you succeed in today's most sought-after IT fields with accelerated classes and year-round program starts to help you earn your degree faster with demand at record high levels for cybersecurity, digital forensics, and networking telecommunications careers. Now is the time to act. Stratford makes it easy, turning your qualified experience into credits earned, and if you're a vet, they'll help you maximize your military benefits. Get complete details and register today at stratford.edu slash 18IT. That's stratford.edu slash 18IT. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Thanks for spending part of it with us here on Tech Talk Radio, where it is time to play the pop quiz. In Profiles in IT, we just talked about Dustin Moskovitz, who was a co-founder and the first chief technology officer of Facebook. Today's question is very simply, what's his wife's name? Her last name is pretty unique. If you know the answer to today's question, well, now would be the time to pick up your device and please dial in. If you're calling from west of the Rockies and you still don't know what to do, there's not much I can tell you. If you're spending a quiet holiday weekend in Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're fishing for an answer in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. And of course, as always, the international line is 877-9-3639-333. Andrew Mitchell, our adjunct professor for prize distribution and crowd control, is standing by to take your call, so... Dial now. So the man who invented the like button on Facebook has now deleted Facebook. Now this man is a is Justin Rosenstein. He's the engineer. He created the uh, the like button feature in 2007. He ultimately left Facebook because he, he formed a company with Dustin Moskovitz, actually, and um, he he basically told his assistant that he does not want to download any apps. He deleted Facebook from all of his uh, all of his uh, computers. He said the the Facebook like button is like a bright ding of pseudo pleasure, one that contributes to Silicon Valley's uh, hold on the public through what they call the attention economy. He said it's very common for human beings with the best of intentions to develop something that has unintended negative consequences. A 2016 study found that the more time young adults spend on social media, the more likely they are to become depressed. And of those tested, people who check their apps most regularly were 2.7 times more likely um, 
to develop depression than those who checked it just, uh, you know, less frequently. Instagram ranked as having the worst effect on young people's mental health. In January, health officials warned that circulation of fake health news on social networks was potentially dangerous to people's health. As well as making users addicted and affecting their mental health, there's growing concern that social media makes people more stupid. Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> there's known, it's, it's known as the continuous partial attention. It's feared that, at, that the app limits the ability to focus and potentially lowers IQ. Rosenstein thinks the like button is insidious, and he regrets that he ever invented it. So now he's out of Facebook completely. Well, Baltimore, of course, had uh, their 9-11 system infected by ransomware. Mm -hmm. The ransomware attack forced the Baltimore's 9-11 dispatch system to temporarily shut down over the weekend of March 24, 2018. Frank Johnson, the chief information officer in the mayor's office, said he was not aware of any specific ransom requests, but um, but he says they were infected with ransomware. Federal authorities are working with them. The attack infiltrated the server that runs the computer-aided dispatch, CAD system for 9-11 and 3-11 calls. The system automatically populates 9-11 callers' location on maps and dispatches the to the closest emergency responder, so there's a seamless handoff. The breach shut down the CAD system from Sunday morning until Monday morning, forcing the city to revert to the old, revert to the old manual system. Now, here's what happened. It was made possible because they, the city, one of the city information technology teams, worked with the firewall and they opened up a port in the firewall so they could remotely um, access one of the servers through the, you know, the the remote desktop protocol. Well, the remote desktop protocol is susceptible to hacking. And apparently the server that they opened up the port toward had not been patched. Now, these hackers have constant scans over IP addresses. They discovered the open port, and boom, they immediately took over that server and uploaded the malware. So it was a combination of two errors. A, they opened up a port and left it open. For 24 hours. B, they opened up the port to a server that had not been patched. So that was really a huge IT faux pas. I mean, that was that's basically human error. That's not like uh, somebody took advantage of somebody doing something. Stupid. That's human error. Now I have to say though that once the uh, the intrusion occurred, their response was not bad. They discovered the intrusion quickly. And they immediately isolated that server from the rest of the system before it could spread. So some of the discussion is how do we how do we protect our, our you know vital infrastructure from hacking? In this case, it was just a matter of following procedures. It, is there, this, it would have this would have been easy to to, to protect from. So yeah. any anything <laughs> uh, so but but we still have an issue with other infrastructure that is vulnerable, right? Yes. I mean, is is it? economically feasible to really protect these things, or is this something that is just something we'll have to live with? No, no. We, this this can be handled. This mm-hmm. can be handled. Mo, most of the attacks, like Atlanta was also hit with malware, mm-hmm. and they, they, had to, they, were, they were having to pay a ransom of $51,000 to get their, to get their um, ransomware, to, you know, to get their information back. Also, Boeing was hit with, uh, with malware, too, over, you know, with, with ransomware over the weekend. So here's where all this came from. Remember back in April of 2017, shadow brokers uploaded hacking tools that had been stolen from the National Security Agency. 
The, the NSA had been stockpiling all of these vulnerabilities for years, and that's what they used to spy on other countries. That's what they used to spy on banks. They were able to break into the SWIFT banking transfer system and spy on bank transfers. And so they had a whole stockpile of vulnerabilities. They didn't tell anybody about them. And when shadow brokers hacked one of the vendors, one of the uh, the contractors for this for the National Security Agency, they downloaded all of those tools and uploaded them to the web. So all of these vulnerabilities are coming out of that NSA toolkit upload from last April. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a relatively simple thing to to guard against. You have to do the security patch, and mm-hmm. the problem is companies are not. And the, the patches were written by Microsoft over a year ago, but they're not patching their systems. Life is too important to be taken seriously. And speaking of that, <laughs> uh, we can't take it too seriously no. here. Hi, folks. This is David Burt. Wow, Doc. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's a good time to roll in the buffet. Uh, that's right. right. You think? Uh, exactly. That's right. I think sh- we're going to show the TED Talk over on the big screen yeah, over yeah, here. Let's get, uh, get that on the 50-inch. That's good stuff. Well, see, yeah. on that TED Talk, he shows the world's yeah. happiest man. That's happy. Which it, Who is him, right? No, it's a monk. It's, it's a monk? A, it's a Buddhist monk, and that's he's, the world's, ha- he's, the, he's the world's happiest man. I'm uh, sure. Happy. Okay. <laughs> no, not happier than David Bird. I no, guess. not happier than I am. That's Stratford he's University. All, he's yeah, Mr. Isn't happy. That, isn't that impressive? I think we all need those. You going to a function after the show? What's going on? No, I'm just trying to look good. You know, I'm just trying to look good here because yeah, you, you, no, you no, never know you never no, know who's going to stop in at the studio. No, that's right. No, no, no. It's his I, action I, with style. I smell that Mary Ann's out of town and no one's done laundry for a while. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. That could oh, be. Let's that's, see. that's possible. This doesn't smell too bad. Let's see the socks. Yeah, that's it. Are they matching? Jimmy, you ready to go for the galactic elevator now? No, actually, what I'm waiting for, that's not going to happen this week, but what you're going to miss is Poetry Corner with no, Dr. Richard Schultz. Are you doing Poetry Corner? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I do. Wow. That's right. I, I didn't ever... You know, guys who do poetry... you got to worry. <laughs> especially, you know, I was ready to say something sweet. With okay? <laughs> I was going for a sweet sentiment. Okay. And you, oh, and you oh, stomped on my heart. No, okay? no, really. no, it, it You did. stomped right on it. Actually, oh, no, I can't Dave, say it now because it sounds insincere. No, say it. No, I can't. Now, you oh, stomped on, on my heart. No. <laughs> Talking poetry. Big baby. Hey, what's with the face? I'm getting toed here. Wait You're getting toed. I, we want to hear it. Well, uh-huh. no, I just, I just want to hear some of the poetry corner. I mean, you know, poetry well, from the dock. I love yeah, that it's stuff. Called, what's it called? The Elusive Twins? Is that? Yeah. Right? I mean, can you rhyme digit? Not what you think. Can you rhyme digit? I I'm thought it had it. Nantucket in it. But no, but this, this, <laughs> is well, not, this, this is not a technology poem. This oh. is a poem about compassion. Wow. Because I was talking about Meng, the guy at Google who uh, who, who's... <laughs> <laughs> Who started? I don't know where we're going here, man. Uh, hand on. I was talking to Ming. Uh-huh. <laughs> talking to Ming, yes. Who's right. Ming? Shade <laughs> Ming Tang. Oh, Shade Ming Tang. Yeah. Okay. Tang. Tang. Yeah, they he's, call him Slim Shady. He's, okay. that's, that's, his, that's his, you know, yeah. he's, gang name. He, he's the guy behind the Search Within Yourself course, which oh. is a meditation course at oh. Google. Oh, okay. I guess. Uh, he's going to Stratford pretty soon. We're getting deep in here today. That's right. Oh, we I really guess we're are. going deep. We really Man. are. That's a nice, that's, that's a good pivot. ISIS well, to poetry. That's good. <laughs> you like that? Well, that you know, nice. it's good. end of summer. Yeah, exactly. Kind of got to get people ramped up to get back to school. Oh, yeah. I, there's something I do want to talk to you about. Uh-oh. Here we go. Here this we is go. this digital television stuff. Oh, God. Oh, okay. yeah, Aereo? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. there's a thing. There is. There are two companies that are that are actually stepping up. <laughs> See, what Aereo should do, if I could just jump ahead a little bit. Aereo should actually, they, they lost their case 
with having these, all these antennas at a central yeah. location and they right. send things out. Yes. So they should just get into the hardware business. Hardware. And they should give you a digital antenna that yeah. you can just put at your house mm. and it would automatically connect to some cloud DVR, but you would have the an- antenna at your house. So they become a hardware company and they use all their techniques directly. You know, Doc, I'm, I see through this, okay? You went through that whole diatribe so you could say cloud DVR. Exactly. Don't you think, Jimbo, I think don't that's you love that? He just likes the cloud thing. DVR. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay, here's the nice, thing. Really. There's already one startup in North Carolina that's building digital antennas for people that want to get digital digital signal for their TVs. Over the air. Over the air. Wow. It's called Mohu. M-O-H-U. Who? That's Mohu. 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 And you can just, uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll have the links on the website. But they have one which is, it looks just like a flat piece of tinfoil wire and and you just just paste it to the window. Wow. And it's extremely, it's it's extremely, uh, saran wrap. Extremely sensitive. And then there's another company called Simple TV. That is creating a uh, their own uh, um, digital DVR. It's a hard drive, so you could so you could take the simple TV, which you uh, right. uh, DVR, <laughs> sure. combine it with the Mohu antenna, and you basically have everything that uh, Aereo could do, except you've got it already. But wow. it's it's the same sort of thing. I mean, they're going to have to get this programming from the networks and whoever and put it on the cloud right no the no cloud. no the, the antenna's at your house it's I no, know that, it's no it's difference gonna... than your own antenna sunny skies and you can store once you get it once you pull it in i mean it is That's your radio name. no it is your antenna nobody can but the, but but you're but you're accessing somebody no, no, else's stuff no 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 you you are <laughs> storing your material on the cloud for your own use. That's not a copyright violation. Okay. Wow. You're storing your own material for your own use. I have a funny feeling. It is not. <laughs> it, 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 it would be like it would be like taking your music collection and storing it on the cloud. There you only go. you can use it. But are you paying for this stuff? You know, it's free. It's free. It's free. It's over the air. You know how the doc is. Come on. It's free. It's a it's, freebie. It's free. He's not paying for anything. <laughs> this guy has, hasn't paid for lunch free. in five years. He's got five so, free Apple products. So listen, so the thing is, Aereo has got backing of $92 million. Mm-hmm. Simple TV has backing of only $5.6 million, uh-huh. and they were a Kickstarter project, and Mohu started with only 144000 I think Aereo should buy those two companies. Get into the hardware business and pivot. Yeah, yeah. This pivot. is a time yeah, yeah. for to them pivot to pivot. You want to pivot. say pivot. I know. That's I know, good. pivot. Cloud DVR, pivot. So, Dave, I think you need a Mohu antenna. I'm going to get <laughs> one. I, I've got a razor in the crowd. I'll give you, you Mohu. Got, you got a Mohu I'm, antenna with your mohair sweater. I'm going to stop at CVS <laughs> on the way home. And, uh, They're right that, next to the phone drives. Yeah, give me the Mohu mm. next to the Listerine. Hey, listen, i got to go, guys. Hey. I, I, I'm going to go into my car and listen to Okay, you go. When is that starting so I can get ready? It'll be starting after in a bit after the. Yeah, after the conference. You know what? The Tech Talk will replay at 2 o'clock tomorrow, more, uh, tomorrow afternoon if you'd like to hear God, this that. show in its entirety. Are you going to put on a turtleneck before the reading? I mean, oh, yeah. And a pipe. <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get a pipe and a, <laughs> a, a cardboard jacket. fireplace in the corner. <laughs> All right, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, okay, bye-bye, everybody. Tune in next week for more Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.